Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Some Mail to Read. That's not the title of our show. It's called We've Got Mail. That's right. That's right. Uh, This is the (laughs) podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. I write for Slash Mm. Film. I write for The Rap. And I talk Mm. to you via (laughs) podcast. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. I've been writing a lot about uh, Fast X. Mm. Or is it Fast 10? It's kind of hard to tell. I like to think it is, it's related to FX, the uh, mm. 1980s thriller about a special effects artist who is, becomes a wanted fugitive and has to uh, use his visual effects prowess to stay alive. Uh, FX and FX2 are pretty good movies. Especially they're, they're FX. Really, really entertaining movies. FX still kicks ass. FX2, which has one of the best subtitles yeah. ever. FX2. Yeah. The Deadly Art of Illusion. Yes. <laughs> Harder to take seriously, but also very fun. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more like colorful and, and a lot more high goofy. energy. Yeah, the a other one's goofy. a little. First one's a little grittier and like more serious noir film. Now, obviously, this is the podcast where we talk about the FX films. That's why we're here so, every thank, single week. Thank you for writing into We've Got Mail. We're going to talk about. FX and just FX <laughs> in no, perpetuity. No, 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 no. This is this is our correspondence podcast. This is where we answer emails and and handwritten letters mm-hmm. from our various listeners. Uh, it's very easy to participate. All you got to do is send us a message. There's two ways to do that. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's right. Or you can send us something via our post office. Box. I bet you didn't know that's what the PO and PO box stood for. I, I think. I think it's. Um, I think they knew. It was embarrassingly old when I figured that out. So, <laughs> really? <laughs> not to, I wasn't thirty, but I wasn't. It wasn't the first time I heard it. I'll say. Were you twenty nine? Shush. Uh, Whitney, what is her PO box? You can send us a physical letter to the critically acclaimed network PO box six four one five six five Los Angeles California nine double zero six four. Yeah, and we uh, and we got stuff. And we have a few things. Yeah, and we, we, got some we always things. start with our PO box. Yeah, we, we, we're, uh, our PO box is not so hopping that. Yeah. We 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 have to give yeah. letters a miss. We'll we'll read anything that comes in our post office. Oh, and, box. and one quick caveat uh, before we begin: uh, we have a new microphone uh, That's right. that we're using now. Our it's old a little, one, a little more sensitive than our last old one. Old one went kaput, so if it sounds a little different, that's why we might be tweaking this over time as we find like the sweet spot uh, yeah. for it and like how to mount it on our boom properly. Me- meanwhile, I'm just tweaking. Yeah, there you go. So in any case, that if you're wondering, hey, Bibbs and Whitney sound extra. Extra handsome today. Extra handsome today. <laughs> uh, that's why. And if you can't tell, good. We don't want it to be too noticeable. But yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm going to crinkle the paper so there you know go. that this is an actual yeah. physical letter here. Little ASMR. Um, this comes from Anthony. This is Hi, a, Anthony. a letter from Anthony. It's uh, it says, "Dear Biolanti and Manda." Yes. Uh, <laughs> those are Toho monsters. Dibs on Biolanti. I, I can be Manda. That's fine. Man- which one, Manda. Which one's Manda. Manda is like a, a killer rosebush. Biolanti is the rosebush. Yeah. Um, Manda is like just a, a sea serpent. It's just like a big. Oh yeah, that, that's way more dragon easy. snake. Uh, 
No, you love you um, love you love the sea. I, I do love the sea. Yeah. I, love, I, love I the don't sea. lie. Um, it took me forever to get the chance to see Mad God. And after my friends and your podcast hyped it up, I saw Mad God, but it was bad timing. The movie was brutal, imaginative, testing your emotions. The scene where one of those mummy slaves gets beat down by a big testicle ogre <laughs> hurt my soul. And the one that ultimately got me was the hairy worm baby. Uh... Okay. If you haven't seen Mad God, this, this all this sounds very... This is going to sound like nonsense if, if, you, if you don't know what yeah. Mad God is. Yeah, Phil Tippett, uh, the uh, animator and uh, special effects guy, uh, made his uh, directed a feature film, a stop-motion animated feature film. It took him many, took many, him many years to, to make this thing. Decades. He worked on it, he put it down, he worked on it again. Uh, I think it was... I think like Guillermo del Toro says, you got to finish this dude, so I finally just pushed it through. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of my favorite movies the year it came out. Uh, just this... Wonderful, wonderful post-apocalyptic nightmare. Yeah, it's uh, all. It's just this stop-motion animation. Uh, it's like um, masked figure, like just yeah. essentially delves into the circles of hell, where everything yeah. is so post-apocalyptic. You don't know like what these machines have been built for anymore. You liked it more than I did, but I still admire the hell out of it. No. Also, if you're wondering what the hell that racket is behind us, That's our cat, cat. Dante uh, <laughs> has decided that now is a good time to scamper and knock things over. Hey Dante, we you love scamper. you, buddy. Get back to Mad God here. Yes. Uh, so yeah, a testicle ogres, mummies. My niece was born a week before seeing this feature, and what happens to the worm baby infuriated me. Oh God. Hence the bad timing part. However, the movie uh, was really great in the end. I even saw House, 1977, based on your best movies that begin with the letter H episode. It was really bananas. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. Uh, if, you don't, if, you, if you haven't seen the movie, you, you, you'll know that, what it is. That, that shit is bananas. Yeah. Um, Kung Fu is the MVP of the... Kung Fu is one of the characters. Kung Fu is the MVP of the movie. The scenes uh, leading to uh, Gorgeous's Ant's Mansion... Gorgeous is another character. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous's Ant's Mansion reminded me of a Wes Anderson picture. Uh, yeah. As a double feature with House, I saw The Haunting, 1963. Ooh, uh, the intense fun. moving camera work, the house, as, the house as a character, a book, although not bound by human flesh, but probably cursed by the mansion's previous owner, loud banging within the walls, a tree causing harm. My God, the Evil Dead is The Haunting. Oh, the Evil Dead movies mm. owe a lot to Robert Wise's Well, the haunting. Uh, most haunted house movies owe a lot to Robert Wise's That's the true, haunting. but Robert Wise does some interesting, like, uh, audio and uh, cinematography gags in that movie mm. that were not commonplace then and still aren't commonplace now and you can see evil dead 2 i think in particular mm-hmm. uh, really plays with that a lot v- very clearly evoking the exact same camera moves and things yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh here's my two questions for you two kaijus uh where do all the sets and figures from movies like mad god go after it is shot and, mm-hmm. are, and are you excited for the new reported standalone godzilla movie in the next seven months set in pre-war japan mm-hmm. uh p.s any tips on raising an eight-week-old kitten any help oh. is appreciated. Uh, keep clear of any oxygen destroyers. Signed, Anthony. Um, well, let's start with the, let's start with the Mad God question mm. first. Where do the things that they use to make movies go where, when they're done? And it depends on the movie. Where do all the Mad Gods go? My worm baby. <laughs> Uh, into a warehouse somewhere in Burbank, probably. I mean, probably, yeah. Mm. What happens... Here's the deal. We'd like to think that after every single movie is made, every single thing that was used to create that movie is like sealed off in like a hermetically tightened you know vault somewhere and take excellent care is taken of all of it. That's not true. No, a lot of it just goes in the trash. A lot uh, of it gets junked, a lot of it is repurposed sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, you build a whole set. Great, awesome. Does anyone else need it like right now? 
Yes. No? Yeah. Well, sometimes yes, and sometimes you'll see the same set appear yeah. in other things of the... Uh, the Doctor Who episode where they go to ancient Rome and Mount Vesuvius is mm. uh, a big part of the the plot. Uh, that the reason why that episode looks so much more expensive than any other contemporary episode of Doctor Who is because the HBO series Rome had just wrapped, and they're just like, "Are you going to knock all this shit down? Because yeah, we could yeah. use it for a few weeks." And they're like, "Sure." So like <laughs> that that shit can be really yeah. really great, but usually it's like, "No, that we need the lumber." Yeah, so uh, a, lot a lot of that of, stuff of it gets, gets uh, reused, repurposed, recycled, or, or, uh, repainted. They'll, they'll build big sets, and they can't just leave the sets up, so they have mm. to like burn them down or yeah. dismantle them in some way. I remember right. there was a story from a couple of years ago uh, where someone was out in the desert, uh, like searching for like artifacts of, of ancient civilizations, mm-hmm. and they found these big pieces of like, structure, and it turned out to be pieces of. Um, Jabba the Hutt's uh, ship oh, like in from, Retur- from yeah from yeah. Return of the Jedi they because they blew it up at the end they actually blew it up when yeah. they filmed it so they just left the pieces out there I uh, I I got to meet Stan Winston once at Comic Con this is mm. obviously before he died and uh, uh, it was right after he'd made Jurassic Park three okay. And in Jurassic Park 3, if you'll recall... Uh, oh, I love this story. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a new dinosaur that has never come back, which is a real bummer because it was badass, called the Spinosaurus, mm. which is basically a much bigger T-Rex with a giant, like... Uh, what do you call him? Like a giant, like, sail on its back, basically. A big, long ridge. Makes it look very distinctive. And it was supposed to be like the new big bad. Ah, oh, move over T-Rex, the Spinosaurus is here. And there's a scene in the movie where they fight, and it's all very, very cool. But they filmed this thing on like one of the Hawaiian Islands or something, and they made these robot versions of those dinosaurs. And then when they were done filming, they were like, great. Uh, we have no way to get those back to the United States. They're not going to fit on a ship. They're not going to fit on a plane, for God's sake. What the hell do we do with this life-size robotic Tyrannosaurus and this life-size robotic Spinosaurus? So they played Rock'em Sock'em Robots until they broke. (laughs) And to the best of my knowledge, no one filmed it, and that is a crime. But then again, that's what they used to say about the time when they were filming uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And Harrison Ford was, like, chained to a rock. And Barbara Streisand showed up in fetish gear and whipped him as a behind-the-scenes joke. <laughs> so, they found footage of that a few oh, no. years ago. And you can, it's not good footage, but it's proof that it happened. Uh, so, maybe someday someone will release that Spinosaurus Rock and Sock and Robots footage. But in any case, the, the quest to find old uh, props and sets from older movies is a part of history. It's something museums try to do. So sometimes these things get saved, but usually only bits and bobs, some of them. Uh, And whenever they're discovered, it's great. Uh, I don't know what from Mad God still exists. Again, he'd been making this thing, I think, since like the 80s, at least the 90s. I can't say that every single thing he's ever created. And the other thing that's actually worth noting is that these things aren't always meant to last. And that you can actually find, like, um, I think it was Hoggle from Labyrinth. Oh, the, they, they found the head? Like, like the because the Hoggle, if you watch the movie Labyrinth, Hoggle was this, like, uh, kind of gnome-like creature, little yeah. goblin-type guy. Uh, and uh, he was a little person in a suit, and he had, like, an animatronic mm. head. And it looked really, really cool. 
But the head was made out, out of, like, material that deteriorated over time. Well, it, it was a soft foam rubber. It, yeah. it wasn't meant to last a long time. It exactly. It melts pretty pretty quick. So, like, eventually they, like, they found... Pretty quick, like, within a year. They like, found, yeah. like, hey, whatever happened? They found it, and it turns out it had just been decaying, and now it looks like mm. a goddamn nightmare. They but found, they found uh, it. Yeah, I remember they found uh, one of the... Um, one of the Ninja Turtles masks oh, yeah. from the live-action Ninja Turtles yeah. movies. And yeah, it started to decay, and it looks really terrifying. Um, if, if you uh, can track down a really wonderful documentary film called The Rockafire Rock Explosion, mm. uh, it's somebody did a documentary film on the animatronic band at Showbiz Pizza. Oh, yeah. And like the actual like conception and building of this animatronic band, the ideas that went behind it, the characters that were invented, and they found the guy who invented all this stuff. He stored that all in a warehouse, mm-hmm. and he just locked it. And yeah. left it there for years. He had no reason to go back. Not, every, not everyone cares. No, like, you'd think uh, everyone would care. Not everyone does. But, yeah, and you know what? A lot of it is just junk. You well, don't need we, to keep that stuff. You don't uh, need to keep everything. But sometimes you never yeah. know what's going to be priceless. Uh, you know? I, I uh, wrote an article recently about uh, Robert Pattinson when he was auditioning uh, to mm. play the role of Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he didn't have the role yet, but he was like in final contention, so they wanted to like dress him up in Batman suits, see how he looks. Yeah, you, uh, you, and whoever else he was up against, yeah, let's like, see uh, who looks better in the Batman suit. Yeah, like, yeah. like t- two to five actors, however many they had, uh, just each had to try on these Batman suits. Yeah, and uh, so he went to Warner Brothers, and they said, "Okay, try on this Batman suit." And it was Val Kilmer's Batman suit from oh, 1995. Man. It was rotten. Like, he puts oh, sure. it on and it's like... It probably stinks. It's like... And yeah, it's like it was had, rubber, right? It had, like, years of sweat just sort of caked yeah. into it from when Val Kilmer, like, sweated into it. And, and George and, Clooney's. And George Clooney's too. as well. So he, yeah. he, he knew well, what those suits smelled like. And yeah, they were, they were falling apart and they're still having him try these damn things on. Yeah. They're... That's the reason they keep these things. Yeah, is they find a purpose for to, it to save money when other people yeah. play Batman. However, there are there were times when they they used to keep a lot of props just in case they need props, and sometimes there are still prop companies and stores that do that. Mm. But then the studios have like wardrobe departments and prop yeah. departments where they just keep the stuff so they can reuse them in other. Uh, yeah, and, and for everything that is incredibly distinctive, there's a pocket watch that no one would ever know. Was from oh, what, this other movie that you can use was, for um, any other time, you know, time capsule film. What's the name of the science fiction device? Um, when the, it's it's two like white looking engine devices that are connected by two neon tubes. Oh, it's like the like, most important machine in the world. I think it's yeah. A, the, the, the it was it was in uh, the last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. I saw it come come up uh, turn up on Star Trek a couple times. Oh, it comes up uh, all the yeah. time on Star Trek. There's this one. Basically, if you go back to like the early days of like sci-fi filmmaking. Uh, every laboratory had what was called the Jacob's Ladder, yeah. which is like two prongs, and you could see like an arc of electricity kind of zip up. And it really doesn't need to be in a lab, but it looks yeah. cool. Here you go. The, the, it's called the most important, the most important device in the universe. Okay, I was close. That, that's that's the nickname they gave yeah. this this prop. But basically, it looks really sciency, so they would just put it in anything. There is a fake prop, like it's not actually a thing. But it looks really sciency, and it has just been reused in every yeah. single See, yeah, movie, it was using TV show, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Five, and Star Trek: The Next Generation. It showed yeah. up on Voyager a couple times. It was in V, the last Starfighter. It was in the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Um. It was in uh the '90s TV series of The Flash. It turned up in Airplane Two. Yeah. It was in Lois and Clark. It was just this one prop that yeah. they just passed around. It's just around. a cool looking prop. What does it do? Honestly, look at it. You tell me what the hell that thing does. It, just it doesn't cool. seem to serve a meaningful purpose. It just looks cool in a lab. It's a cool lab thing. Yeah. 
So again, sometimes they get repurposed. Sometimes they end up in museums. Uh, studios sometimes keep them all. And then like there were instances in which there was like a huge studio fire and they lost a lot of things. They kept the original set from the uh, silent movie Phantom of the Opera. Mm. But then it all burned down. No. I think there was once... To, was it Universal? There was some studio once that was going through really hard times and they had an auction. Yeah. And they just that, that, sold off happen. all their shit. It happened with Paramount. Uh, uh, Paramount. So, so, yeah, of, yeah. A, Paramount auctioned off a lot of their stuff. Yeah. Paramount had a leftover, more, more Star Trek trivia, they had a leftover shuttlecraft. Like oh, yeah. A whole shuttlecraft. Like, they, they built, it's a set, essentially. Yeah. You could, like, get inside and sit down and there's computer panels uh, that they used on uh, Enterprise. Ah, so nobody wanted it because <laughs> Enterprise isn't terribly popular. Also, what do you what do you do with something do, that's the size have, of a car? It's like the size of a space minivan, for it, yeah. right? Yeah, not you everyone park, does. You just sort of park it in your like, garage and I, leave it there. I like, would what? love that thing, but what am I going to do with it? Yeah, like, exactly. Sleep in it, I suppose. Yeah, like it's like your, your it's guest your room. House. Yeah. There was a, there was an episode of the Drew Carey show mm. where he had won a contest where he won the Batmobile, and okay. it was like the Val Kilmer version of the Batmobile, and it was All like that cool kind of like. One where it had Skeletal, like skeletal, yeah, kind of Gigurian kind of design, weird looking yeah. thing, but it was really cool. And uh, he he was driving it around, and it was really awesome. And he was like going on a date in it. And there was the, the episode climax when uh, he was arrested for public indecency because he was having sex in the Batmobile, and it got taken away from him because there was like a morals clause: you defiled the Batmobile for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're all disgusted. That's now. adorable. Um, so anyway, listen. Uh, there are museums, the whole mm. shows that will present a whole bunch of props. Uh, I, I, sometimes I miss Planet Hollywood because they would show off oh, all these really yeah. cool props. Uh, there are definitely yeah, no, the people, there are private collectors, there are studios that protect these things, but less is cared for than you probably think or would like. Yeah. yeah. So it, cherish well, what we can find. If, if it's filmed, you know, for a lot of filmmakers, that's done. You film yeah, it. You get it, you get it on film and you're finished with it. Yeah, so that's, that's really what's that been stuff. preserved. Exactly. Um, as for a Godzilla movie set in pre-war Japan, I hadn't I'm heard down. about this. So I knew there was I'll, a new I'll one coming. That, yeah. I didn't hear it was set in pre-war Japan. That's it's like exciting. a new Japanese. It, it's not part of the Shin mm. Godzilla universe, is it? Or, I honestly don't know. Mm. I knew there was a new one coming, but I've been mm. kind of like... Because we're doing a new podcast, if you if you missed uh, last week. We have a new podcast on the main feed called Thank Godzilla, It's Friday. Uh, where every Friday we're going to be re- uh, reviewing a new film, or another film rather, in the Godzilla series. It should take us about a year, because we're going to do all of the ancillary connected movies, in addition to the main Godzilla films. So like the Mothra movies and that kind yeah, of thing yeah. as well. Um, and um, yeah, so we're, we're doing all of those, and uh, we're also, uh, if you're a member of our Patreon, you're going to get them one week early. So if you listen to the show in the main feed, you like it, you want to hear another episode right away, head on over to the Patreon, it's already there. So we're we're excited to do all these Godzilla movies, but I'm like I'm gonna see it in a year no matter what. So I'm not really keeping tabs on what the new one's gonna be. But yeah, yeah. I'm stoked. We'll see. I'm it. down. It sounds like it sounds like it's really fun. There there are good Godzilla movies and bad ones. I hope it's one of the good ones. Uh, as for taking care of an eight month old cat. Uh, this is something I've done twice mm. in the relatively recent uh, I've, uh, past. I've cared for kittens as well, but y- yeah. you much more recently than I. Yeah, we got our cat Luca. Our cat Luca is, I think, about seven now. Mm. And uh, we had him when he was only one month old. He was found uh, in an alleyway, and mm. we had to take care of him. And he was very, very sweet. Uh, and so we had him when he was very, very little. Uh, and then our most recent cat, Dante, who we got last summer, he was about a year old when we got him. Which means he was essentially fully grown, but still very kitteny in his attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
love them because they're going to be such a chore. That they're a, ne- they'll never thing, have yeah. more energy probably. Mm-hmm. And once they're like hit eight months or so, they're starting to get like cat sized, and they don't know their own strength. They're still, they, they're still trying to climb your body, even mm-hmm. though they're heavy and have sharper claws now. I don't know if you have more than one cat. Uh, if you don't, uh, they don't have anyone their own size to roughhouse with. So they probably don't know that biting hurts. Mm. And I've noticed this, because when we had Luca, we didn't have any other cats for him to play with. And when he nipped, he nipped hard. Ow. Whereas Dante came from a house that had a whole bunch of cats, and when he nips, it's just a little like, boop, uh, please don't bet me right now. Okay. And so it's much, much healthier. And ever since we got Dante, and he's been, they've been scurrying together, and they've been roughhousing a little bit, Luca bites less hard now. Okay. So I think that's something, so if that's the case, be ready for that. Hmm. Um... But um, also, also other than um, that, just yeah, they're cats. Love them, cuddle them. And, and important, nice. an important rule for if if you have a kitten is to mm-hmm. uh, let me hold it. Yes, and and cuddle a, a kitten when he's when he's when he's <laughs> one of those people. Just you walk in, it's like ooh, cat. I'm, I'm, cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a cat guy. Cat yeah, guy, what can I the, say? The cat will tell you how it likes to be affectionate, yeah. so it'll get on your lap or it won't mm-hmm. you know if you try picking it up and it doesn't like it don't pick up that cat that cat is telling you yeah. no you, you you can train cats though you can to, but you don't want to push them you don't want to push them you don't but you want to keep on trying you, you have to keep, train them you know keep on, there's a difference so you do want to push them there's a difference between keeping on trying uh, and not paying attention to the signals your cat is putting out all right and so i'm just saying be cognizant of that yes um you know make sure you get all their their shots and everything yeah. go to the vet um and uh, yeah, I guess that's about it, really. I, I cats are cats are endlessly complicated yet very simple. Feed yeah, them, cuddle they're, them. They're they're easy from take them to the vet once ge- in a while. Generally speaking, they're easier than dogs. Of course, it depends yeah. on the dog and it depends on the cat. Always, but, uh, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't have to take cats for walks. Way. That's the important no. thing. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I like. I learned the hard way because until I had Luke, I'd never raised a cat from a kitten. We'd always gotten like full grown cats. Uh, when and, I was a and kid. Your cat, uh, if if you die in your apartment, though, your cat will eat your eyes. That's true. And honestly, good for them, I say. <laughs> um, so, someone's gonna, and I hope mm. it's not... Uh, hope it's I not hope, the neighbor. Hope, yeah, right? <laughs> I think it should be the cat. <laughs> oh, t- sorry, officer. I was uh, just... Mm. I, you know, well, one thing led to another. <laughs> um, I rec- Oh, one thing I recommend, there's a... Uh, uh, our cat Luca doesn't necessarily like drinking water from bowls, but when we got one of those little water fountains, recyclers, yeah. little water recycling fountains, um, which are not super expensive, uh, he just really was just all of a sudden interested in hydrating. So that all was right. like, that was just better for him. But you got to remember, you got to replace the filter every couple of months. All right. So uh, don't, can, don't skip out on that. Shall we move on? Because that was one letter. That was one that we have one other, <laughs> we have right. a package. We have actually. a package. Yeah, somebody yeah. sent us an actual package. There a note in here that is okay. Oh, it's a little little note. Okay. It's a thank you note. No, here we go. Oh, it's a gift. A gift oh. for you from your friends at Champs on Film. Every Evil Dead fan deserves uninterrupted access to this show. Watch at your leisure. Enjoy and let us know what you think. Keep up the great work from Adam Collins and Marcel McKee. Oh my God! Oh, and it is. Oh, it's a DVD copy, the complete series of Ash vs. Evil Dad. Oh my god, that's so nice uh, of them. Oh, that's very kind. Um, yeah, we, we've, we've talked about the show a lot, neither of us has seen it. Um, yeah. uh, Dano DiLorenzo is an old friend of mine. Uh, 
from no, the was, pod, from the Schmodown, no less. I, I appeared on the Schmodown with Dana DiLorenzo. Know, We're not is, old friends or anything. This but, uh, is so unbelievably that's kind. Very generous. If you if you're unfamiliar with Adam Collins and Marisol McKee, mm-hmm. uh, they are two of the greatest movie trivia minds I have ever encountered in all of my travels. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully intelligent, kind human beings. I'm not just saying that because they gave me Ash versus Evil Dead, or both of us rather. Um, I'm saying that because they're just genuinely wonderful human beings. Uh, you should check out their YouTube channel, Champs on Film. They talk about uh, you know their various movie reviewing uh, anything they really want to talk about. They just review their movies. They do this weird wrestling thing where they come up with wrestling avatars for people. Um, my only complaint is I wish they posted even more. So I love them to pieces. Thank you so much for this. Please check out their YouTube channel and yes, I kind of worship at the ground that they walk on because they'll know more about trivia than I ever will. Yeah. And that's just true. So thank you. Thank you. That's really, mm-hmm. really cool of you. And you did not have to do that, but I am excited to finally watch this thing. Thank you. Yeah, and, and um, thank you for listening to the show, apparently, because how would you have known <laughs> otherwise? My God. This is a, it's going to be a, a fill-in, because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of those Evil Dead movies. Yeah, uh, I never saw. We joked a lot because uh, because it was broadcast on Stars. That's why we couldn't is, yeah, watch it's, it. It's, it's, a, it's on Stars, so it's essentially unavailable. And, right. Uh, <laughs> Who has stars? I don't know anyone who has stars. Having, I mean, I'm sure some people just have it as part of like just have every cable like station. a big package. Yeah. But like generally speaking, like watching stars is like um, when I was it's a like kid, subscribing to Crackle. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. No, it's like when I was a kid, there was uh, the console wars, okay. and you, 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 the reason for the console wars, the reason why people had like uh, uh, strong opinions about what was better, Nintendo or Genesis, or Sega, rather, Mm. uh, was they were expensive, and your parents could probably only afford to buy one of them. Well, also, you don't have time to devote any time to both. Oh, we'd make the time. I would not have. I would play one. (laughs) A lot of people would make the time. But my point is this. You probably only had one, and so you got a little competitive over, well, I have a Sega Genesis. Well, I'm better. I have a Super Nintendo. Mm. But... There was always that other system. Like, I have a Super Nintendo. I have a Sega Genesis. Well, I have a TurboGrafx-16. Mm. Stars is the TurboGrafx-16. Although Technically, I, it's out there. I'll, probably I'll, has some cool games, but no one cares. I'll, I'll say this. I've played a TurboGrafx-16. Uh-huh. Uh, a friend of mine like had a lot of old consoles. and brought Bonk? one to a party. I did play Bonk, uh, Adventures of Bonk, which was also on uh, the Genesis, I believe. Bonk was their uh, version Bonk's of Adventures. Sonic the Hedgehog. It was a caveman who hit things with his head. Yeah, Bonk's yeah. Adventures. And uh, it sounds absurd, but you know there are sillier video games. Yeah, um, Mario is silly if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, no, I played uh, whatever their version of Gradius was. Uh, it was oh. like a spaceship firing bullets kind of a game. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, it, and it was really fun. Cool. Graphics were really good compared yeah. to like the NES that you were playing at the time. TurboGrafx predated, I think, the Super Nintendo and the Genesis. It, I think it was the first 16-bit system. I could be wrong about yeah. that. It was definitely one of them. Um, there was also that one guy in school who claimed to have a Neo Geo, but you can't come over. Like, uh, I, well, I, I, my all, parents won't let anyone come over. I'm like... The ne- sure. The Neo Geo was like seven thousand dollars. It was massively expensive. Yeah. Although uh, the the gimmick with the Neo Geo, a it had arcade level quality. Like it was super yeah, it was advanced really cool. for the time. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, it had, it had really, Samurai Showdown on yeah, it. Yeah, like really complicated controls that it took a long time to master. It had yeah. a keyboard uh, that served some function, and uh, you could insert a card into your home uh, system, mm-hmm. play a video game, and then 
remove the card, take it down to your local arcade, insert the card in a slot in the arcade cabinet, uh-huh. and pick up your game where you left off. Yeah. Uh, which was, like, a mind-blowing innovation at the time. I mean, it's a cool idea. It's not going to come up very often, but it's a very well, cool vi- idea. video arcades are a little bit moribund now. People no, but even at the, the time. House, even, but, uh, I never saw anyone actually do that. I think I point. saw somebody do that once. Yeah. But in any case... Adam, Marisol, you guys are really nice. And thank you again. That's very, very cool. You did not have to do that. Mm. But thank you. That's very cool. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's read some emails. All right. Uh, emails. Okay. Here's a letter from Ken. Okay. Um, Hi, Ken. Uh, hello, fellow fellows of some critical acclaim. <laughs> I just had a recent conversation with a friend online about lighting in modern cinema. It's become clear that many directors are using HDR as an excuse to shoot their features incredibly dark, and it makes it difficult to see what's happening. Mm. I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm close to NYC and we've got laser projection being installed, so these lighting issues are getting alleviated to some extent, but there are still theaters that don't have that luxury. Mm. Uh, this, letter I'm, this letter I'm writing just to let you have an excuse to have your take on modern lighting and blockbusters. Looking forward to your possible thoughts. Ken. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Modern lighting. Lighting in movies, especially mainstream studio films, mm. they go in waves. And yeah. sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what uh, what wave you're in while you're in it. But then mm. wait five years. You'll be like, oh, my God, every movie used to look blue and orange. Why was that? Yeah. Um, the the, uh, the amber cyan wave, which yeah. was more in graphic design than it was in actual like film Cinematography, but no, there were definitely uh, but, films yeah. that had it though, and a part of it's just because uh, they're high co- contrast colors. They're high contrast yeah. colors, so when you're color timing a movie, and mm. especially digitally, you can kind of just set that yeah. and not have to well, think about it too hard. And looking back, you can say, "Oh, well, this is a new digital tool." That kind of digital color, yeah. color grading—they're trying to sort of adjust the temperature of every single shot. Yeah, and they made everything super high contrast as a result because they could. Yeah, it was just a fun new toy they were tinkering with, so everything looked really kind of oversaturated and. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies looked really ugly, uh, but that, that's that's part of it. New mm-hmm. tools come around; everyone wants to play with the new tools. One or two new movies try something different, and now everyone wants to copy them because that was really cool. I remember after Saving Private Ryan came out, everyone wanted to do the adjusted oh, that, shutter, that, that fake shaky cam thing. Well, it's yeah. not even fake shaky cam; you're just adjusting the shutter so that when like um, you can just see a lot more crisp detail in moments of like high intensity action. So like Gladiator yeah. did that too, and a lot of other actiony. You know, mm. war type movies. Yeah, I don't know when. Like, I can't pinpoint the origin. Like, what film or TV mm. show like kind of pioneered the the gloomy look that we're yeah. kind of stuck in right now. I, when I think uh, of an example, the great example I think of is the Batman, where yeah. it's just like that's just hard to see a lot of it. I mean, it's mm. it's well, it's certainly like uh, uh, certainly constructed well yeah, across I, the street, I heard framed a, well, but it's also just like. You didn't have to make it that dark, did you? What, what was... Really? Okay. I heard a, a comedian say that uh, the, the reason that studios are doing that is so they can eventually just show a black screen and, yeah. not, and not film anything and just play like an audiobook. Well, I remember reading uh, that uh, when the Wachowskis did the first The Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, and that Matrix movie, you know, it's a big sci-fi spectacular, but it's very moody, almost film noir-type lighting. And I was like, why did you do that? And it's like, well, here's the thing. If you put a lot of your backgrounds in shadow, you can save a lot of money on production design. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes there's a very practical reason for it. It's, uh, not, even, it's not even I'm, fun. My guess is, uh, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've seen previews for uh, The uh, the Little Mermaid. It's yeah. an upcoming film from, uh, from, from Disney, and it's all, mostly digital. Like some, a lot there's, of there's he, human yeah. actors, but you know, yeah. parts of their bodies well, are a lot of it's underwater, recreated, and it's all underwater. Taking it, yeah. Uh, 
I, I can't see a damn thing in that movie. Everything's yeah. really kind of misty and hazy well, and difficult funny, to see. Actually, the first like trailer or two that they showed mm. was like really dark, and yeah, you, you just I couldn't tell what was going on. It looked just murky in a mm. perhaps realistic but not readable way. And now every commercial trailer I see boosted. They kind of saturated the color. I, I think the it, it's not unheard of that they would make that change. I remember mm. when uh, the Black Adam uh, trailers were coming out, people were talking about like, "Oh, it looks so dull and desaturated." And when it came out, it wasn't that dull and desaturated. It looked like part of that is we're just doing the trailer. Mm. We don't necessarily know what the movie's going to look like, and so it's still early on in the process that could shift. Maybe the trailer was trying to hide some CG that wasn't quite ready yet. Mm. Hard to say. Uh, but yeah, it's not the finished product until it's the finished product. And even then, yeah. they sometimes change it on home video. So. Uh, I, and I think it'll, a lot of the, the trends towards darkness uh, are, have a lot to do with the kind of cameras that, that a lot of filmmakers mm-hmm. are using. Uh, there's yeah, just certain kinds of lenses and cameras that come in and out of vogue as like new, yeah. new equipment is invented because it's being invented all the time. And uh, yeah, lenses can let in a lot more light. So they're taking cameras into these really dark rooms and if you look closely, you can kind of see details in the shadows, and they're just filming scenes like that. Uh, Star Trek, uh, to bring it up again, is is a major offender of this. Uh, if you've seen the, the, the most recent season of Picard, yeah. it takes place mostly on a ship called the Titan, and you go on down the bridge, and everything's really kind of dim. It's like there are. It's like night they're trying shift. Trying to save money on, on light bulbs. L- lighting. It's an expensive probably, ship. Uh, they're trying to save money on light bulbs. Uh, and then later in the show, they go back on the Enterprise D, for, which was the show the the ship yeah. they used in the nineties, and they tried to recreate the lighting, and it was like that even TV lighting uh-huh. from the nineties. It's like, oh, thank fuck, you can finally see what's going on on this well, goddamn bridge. Well, that's one where it just uh, doesn't make sense in context of the show. Why would you want? I mean, it's not a submarine. Mm. Why would you want this big fancy ship where like a ton of people work to have lighting that's uncomfortable and hard yeah. to see things? What and, possible and, function could that? And serve? the computer panels light up. It's like your eyes would just yeah. start to burn after a while. Yeah, like have you ever um, like tried to like do a whole bunch of work with like the lights off with just your yeah. laptop? It's like it gets to your eyes after a while. Yeah. Why I, would I, you try to do that? So if you could avoid I think it? I think there's a lot of uh, digital cameras that are capturing so much detail mm-hmm. that uh, to, if you were to like blast light onto everything, it would look like a set. Yeah. Uh, and it, it wouldn't have that sort of... So they're just sort of keeping the lights down so things look a little bit more cinematic. That's part of it. Uh, another part of it is, in the case of something like The Little Mermaid, is I'm guessing that it's a way to hide special effects. Oh, it can be, sure. Uh, there's all these digital effects that are uh, done in a terrible rush. Mm-hmm. So they might not look that great. So if they can kind of desaturate and make everything kind of shadowy, mm-hmm. it makes things look a little bit more impressive when really they just didn't finish a lot of the things or it looks mm-hmm. really bad. That's definitely a possibility. I, I can't necessarily point fingers, but I do know movies that have done that. Mm-hmm. Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Mm-hmm. That you almost never see Godzilla when it's not really, really dark. And one of the reasons why is you save some money on that. It's not, you don't have to render every single bit super duper clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I think of, though, is uh, I think when you when you record music, like let's say you record an album, mm-hmm. and you're recording like in a studio, and you've got these like, even, even just an okay studio, you're getting really good speakers, really good headphones... Uh, you're whenever you record something and you play it back, you're listening to it and as close to the ideal version of it as possible. And when you're done with that, you're supposed to play it on the shittiest speakers you can find. Yeah. Because not everybody is going to be hearing that on the best speakers or the best headphones. You want to make sure that when that song plays on someone's shitty radio from their 20-year-old car, 
that song is still going to play. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like not every movie production is thinking of mm-hmm. because I've seen a lot of these movies, especially horror movies that are like dripping in darkness. And I can imagine, you know, if you get to see it in the ideal scenario, really nice theater, perfectly uh, a calibrated, um, mm-hmm. perfect calibrated projector, great sound system. Everything's really, really nice. It doesn't matter that it's extremely dark because any part of it that's light is a huge and B, contrasted just right. But when I'm watching it at home, and yeah, I've got my TV on the right settings and everything like that, but when you're watching it at home in the middle of the day, you don't have that darkened theater. You don't have that giant... I don't care how big your TV is at home, it's probably not as big as a movie theater. You're working in a different system, and I've seen plenty of horror movies that I bet look really, really great in a theater... But at home, on a sunny afternoon, they're just hard to make out sometimes. And I wish I could see them in exactly the perfect situation. I wish that was possible. It's not. And sometimes I think we might we might want to foolproof these things a little bit yeah, more. Yeah. You know? We might want to take that into consideration. Mm. Everyone always says, you know, this is the way movies were meant to be seen. Yeah, but we're mostly going to be watching them at home. Mm. So they need to work there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the issue I have is with uh, in that case, in that uh, yeah. scenario, sound mixing. Oh where, yeah. Uh, you know, you hear it in the theater and it's mixed well, and you can hear everything mm. because there's you know all the channels they're dealing yeah, with. They... Uh, you watch it on just a stereo TV at home. Mm. The action scenes are too loud, or the dialogue is too soft. Quite so you're constantly tar- turning things up and down. Quite Everyone common. has had this issue. It's very common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, why is modern lighting uh, dim overall? It's difficult to say. I don't yeah. think there is a single cause. I think a lot of it is trendy. I think a lot of it is. I think most of it is probably technology based. Mm-hmm. Um, I guarantee you I that I can't it, it, wait until I can see things I again. Know. I guarantee I'm getting you that, old. I know. I guarantee you, it'll be trendy as long as every once in a while a movie like The Batman comes out and everyone's like, "Oh, that looks different. I want to look like that." And then eventually something else will come out and people are like, "Oh, I want to look like that instead." Whitney, what are you doing? Sorry. I got, I got a message there. What was what was your what was that uh, noise? It, it was a music cue. I apologize okay. for that. Thank you. Um, in any case, um, yeah. Anyway, hopefully that answers that question. Again, there's a lot of speculation, but we can talk about general trends and things. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers. Hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Uh, Whitney, what's our next uh, our next uh, email? Here's our next letter. This one comes from RJ. Hello, RJ. Hello, RJ. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, I wanted to address something that Bibbs said in a Twitter discussion. Oh, no. Uh, regarding the role of the Scarlet Witch in Doctor Strange 2. Okay. This is a Marvel letter. Uh, Here we go. Well, going back and forth with another Twitter user ex- mm-hmm. uh, expressing his distaste for the writing... Uh, I'm not fond of Doctor Strange 2 either. Okay. Um, Bibbs' final tweet in the specific discussion was, uh, the star of the film and series disagrees with you. I happen to think she's right. 
Uh, I feel like I know Bibbs well enough mm-hmm. to assume that it wasn't his intention, but it very much read as a kind of mic drop shut down argument over moment, and this line of thinking always rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uncommon for fans and critics to use a cast or crew member's perspective on a film to back up their own argument, but it does drive me nuts because the actors are not an authority on the quality of their storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, might find that sometimes actors are a little bit clueless. Um... I admire actors. I admire mm. what they do. Uh, it, it was done to death by the people who hated The Last Jedi, harping on about how Mark Hamill didn't like the direction of Luke Skywalker's story as if that proved them right, and it doesn't. Uh, Mark Hamill, Elizabeth Ol- Actually, um, Mark Hamill came mm. around on The Last Jedi. Uh, uh, he, even he, the original he, he, he were, quote was him saying, I read the script, I was like, oh, I don't know if I like I, that. I object and to then, your approach to the character. And, and then, then he eventually the realized yeah. that he that it was a good idea. Mm. Yeah, so even uh, that that was always disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hamill, yeah. Elizabeth Olsen, and all actors are more than entitled to their opinions on these things, mm-hmm. but their opinions don't hold any more water than ours in an argument, and relying on them with, to win a debate is mm-hmm. pretty poor form. Again, not suggesting that Bibbs intended to do that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it's a film discussion. Well, it's not I, a debate. I, I, and, specific, uh, you know, I'll talk about... Let me finish the letter. I'll actually talk about this because I think there's some context being left out. All right. Uh, I happen to think the directions taken with uh, both the Scarlet Witch and with Luke Skywalker were good. And it's totally mm-hmm. cool if their actors disagree, but I'm sick of the notion that my opinion is now invalid because someone closer to it agrees. Uh, disagrees, excuse me. Mm-hmm. I understand the argument more when it comes to writers and directors as they are the ones in charge of the storytelling and can offer insight into their own intentions, but I still wouldn't say that they are an authority on anything either. Uh, see, recently, when the writers of Sick of Myself replied to a review that uh, that stated the film didn't develop its themes well enough, saying, yes, actually, it did, which is by far one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen from a creative person. Mm. Uh, you, you didn't tell your story well. Yes, I did. <laughs> Anyway, I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Uh, mm. P.S. Uh, P.S. On a recent Letters episode, uh, Bibbs mentioned the film Defula, oh, yeah. uh, an adaptation of Dracula performed entirely in American Sign Language. Bibbs said that it wasn't readily available at the moment, and it's certainly not on any streaming services, but I stumbled across this film in doing some research recently for a university assignment about disability and horror films, and found that the film is available to watch on the Internet Archive. Oh, great! It's on. It's online. That's I just a want to very, put that out there yeah. for any listeners who may be interested. Sincerely yours, RJ. It's my understanding that Defula is the very first film ever made entirely in American Sign Language. Mm. It is a retelling of the Dracula story uh, through deaf characters. Uh, it is really fascinating. I think it is good, but obviously it's a it's a it's a distinct watch. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, check. Track that down. Look it up in the Internet Archive. That sounds interesting to you. Regarding this uh, uh, Twitter conversation. A couple of things here that I think are being pointed out are very, very reasonable, but we're talking about the context of a specific conversation. Mm. The main point, which is just because a filmmaker says something that doesn't make him right, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I totally agree with that. The the difference here is that I, the original post that started the conversation... You're, you're was a quote was was a, was a quote from Elizabeth Olsen about the movie. Okay, so I was posting this, and Elizabeth Olsen had said uh, when they were making Doctor Strange two mm-hmm. uh, that oh that she, she, WandaVision wasn't done, so they were changing yeah. the character. Well, it's not even the WandaVision wasn't. I mean, I, I know it wasn't done, but like it was in production. There was mm-hmm. actually like there was something for them to see or read, and she was like, "Yeah, you know, this is kind of." 
what we did in WandaVision, but again and more violent mm. and not like with all like the meta commentary. And she was like, did you see WandaVision? And the writers were like, no. Yeah. And the point is, and some people were like, well, of course they hadn't seen it. It wasn't done yet. And I'm like, yeah, I think Elizabeth Olsen knows that. I think the point <laughs> was, was there, yeah. the point of the conversation is that there wasn't communication being done between the writers of the show and the writers of the movie. And my only comment in the original post was, I posted that link and Mm. said, yeah, we could tell. Uh Because my biggest critique of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is that it didn't seem like an organic through line between what her character went through in WandaVision and what her character went through in Multiverse of Madness. It felt like she had been on a complete arc exploring her grief... Mm-hmm. At which point she had come to a conclusion about it. And then they just and said, just, and by the way, now she's evil. And she's a supervillain now, yeah. And it seemed like the only really thing that they had done to justify that is tack on a post credit scene where she's reading an evil book, which is just a MacGuffin without shame. And I didn't find that terribly satisfying. And it sounds like Elizabeth Olsen didn't either. And so I'm not saying she's right. I'm saying I'm right. And I felt a little justified that Elizabeth Olsen said that. No, you can disagree with me all you want. That's totally fine. But it's weird to me when, like, the the counter-argument is... The person who I was talking to said basically, no, I think they made the right call. And my point is, they didn't make any call. They were working independently of each other. If it happened to work out for you, fine. But it was a clear case of miscommunication or lack of communication that the two ended up overlapping in this really awkward and arguably redundant way. Yeah. I don't think that's good storytelling. Now, again, I'm not saying that I agree with everything Elizabeth Olsen does about everything. (laughs) I'm not saying that she seems bright and I I admire her work. See Martha, Martha, Marcy, Martha, Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. Yes. Thank you. I always get that title wrong. She's amazing in that movie. Holy crap. Like, just, if you've, mm-hmm. if you've only seen her in Marvel movies, see her in that, see her in other things. She's fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, I was just, it was just basically, oh, hey, someone who made the movie agreed with my critique of it, which you don't usually get. Yeah. People tend to be rather defensive uh, about their films. So that was mm-hmm. the only reason I posted it, and that was why I kept bringing it up. And, and to be fair, the conversation actually did continue after that. That was not really a mic drop. Okay. And uh, so, yeah. Um. I, I try not to do that. I don't use a, a, a filmmaker's or an actor's opinion to sort of back up mine. I'll, I'll mention it maybe. It's sure. like, here, here's another, here's the perspective on that. Um, here, here's something pretty galling about our profession. Uh-huh. Uh, we're permitted to interpret a film however we see it. Sure. Uh, as long as it makes sense, as long as we can justify it. Yeah. If, if we can explain it cogently, and yeah. we, we, uh, we, if we have a perspective on it and we can explain it cogently, that's our job as a critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a filmmaker, a writer, a director who's very intimately, uh, mm-hmm. you know, involved with every aspect of the filmmaking and the storytelling and creating the story, uh, might take exception to our interpretation. Sure. But you know what? Once it's out in the public, mm-hmm. it's free to interpretation. And a filmmaker may object strenuously about a takeaway that we might have from a certain film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? They're not right, and neither are we. And we we're, are right, and so are they. We're uh, equally right, regardless. As long again, as long point, as point as long being, as we can explain how we got to our point. Uh, point being, uh, often, and I'm not trying to make critics seem like some sort of rarefied Olympian <laughs> intellects who are heavens kind of, no, yeah, who, who are trying to uh, you know 
lay down all the groundwork for every uh, you know every single interpretation of her movie. Uh, but we see a lot of movies. Yeah. We're familiar with a lot of movies, mm-hmm. and we can offer a perspective on a movie that a filmmaker might not have thought of mm-hmm. when they were making it. Yeah. There are instances where a, a critic can point out to a filmmaker what their movie is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the critic could be anyone, whether or not yeah. they're a professional critic. As long as exactly. you're like, observant about film yeah, and yeah. articulate, you can, yeah. So a movie can be about something that a filmmaker didn't intend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so relying on a filmmaker's opinion isn't necessarily going to win you an argument if that's all you're interested mm-hmm. in. And and, uh, and and the idea that, well, this is what the filmmaker said that they mm-hmm. meant, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what came across. Mm-hmm. If you or, believe, or that they did it well. If you believe in the existence of the subconscious mind, mm-hmm. just as in general, if you believe you can do things without being fully cognizant that that's what you're doing, that that's a pattern that you're doing, or that's yeah. something that's coming across whether you mean it or not, it comes across in art. Yeah. People don't necessarily think about, like, you know, they look back and it's like, oh, wow, hey, all my movies are kind of mm-hmm. revolving around a similar theme, aren't they? Oh, my God. You know, like, that yeah, uh, that happens. Uh, and, you know, if a fil- an artist might read mm-hmm. those critiques and have, like, a moment of reflection. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll continue to follow their passions regardless. Yeah, just who I am. Uh, I'm totally fine. Yeah. I know some filmmakers are very eager to discuss, like, the themes and the machinations of what their movies are all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, some filmmakers hate doing that. Yeah. Uh, David Lynch has famously refused, refused it, yeah. to talk about sort of what his movies are about. It's like, I made it. It's up there. What's yeah. it about? It's on. You see it, right? Yeah, that's, 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 that's what it's what about. It is. Yeah. You can, you, it's uh, now, now it's your job. Uh, David Cronenberg, who's now like mm-hmm. 80 years old, is he, he gets all of these uh, like highfalutin interviewers like, so what what sort of commentary were you making? I don't know. I just made a movie, <laughs> man. Like he, he he is just staunchly refuses to even put meaning in his own movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's up to you. That's up to the viewer. He's like, mm-hmm. I'll leave that. All the interpretation is up to the viewer. Yeah. What, what, it's, did, it's, what did I do? I just sort of followed my gut and I couldn't tell you what it's about. And that's some filmmakers yeah. do. That. Other filmmakers are very specific about what they're trying to get across and yeah, want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And they have, and yeah. So, uh, yeah, the the idea of, uh, and especially actors. Actors are concerned mm. about the characters. Yeah. That's their job, is to delve into the, the person and, you know, follow direction well. So they're not necessarily looking at the film from a thematic perspective either, or even a storytelling mm. perspective. They're just concerned about their character's arc. If they're focused on their role. Mm. There are other actors who like to get sort of broader perspective, but I haven't met too many. Most of the actors I've spoken to have, uh, you know, kind of delved into just their character because that's their job. Uh, it's not their job to worry about tone. Uh, hmm. Arguably. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, re- relying on that as some sort of clincher is, is, I mean, first of all, why are you arguing so much online? <laughs> okay, I got, uh, but, I, got uh, su- I got sucked into an argument. No, it, it, I freely admit that. It happens but, to all of us. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I freely but, admit that. That's fine. Mm. But I'm, when I'm, I, I want to be clear, though, and sometimes mm. I use social media conversations in order to help me be able to make arguments cogently and quickly. Uh, so sometimes if I post something and people are like, hey, wait a second, I'm like, oh, was I not cogent and clear enough? Was, oh, okay, let me refine mm-hmm. and it kind of comes back and forth and sometimes it's the internet sometimes people come across harsher than they intend or sometimes people are just harsh sometimes mm-hmm. people troll sometimes people, people just w- yeah. willfully misunderstand yeah and, and sometimes people just not everyone is like 
trying to be a writer and they're like necessarily choosing their words as carefully as they possibly could and sometimes things come across more antagonistic than they need to or they were intended um and then sometimes it's totally intended it's hard to tell sometimes so in any case i try to be accessible on social media and have like conversations with people that are like i try to have a conversation with someone following me on on twitter uh, and if they're asking about something that I maybe reviewed or a movie or whatever like that, I try to have the same conversation with them that I would have with any uh, film critic that I know. Yeah. And I try to just give them that benefit of the doubt. And then sometimes it just turns into a rabbit hole. And I fall into that. And I've been meaning to take a social media vacation, actually, for a while. It's I did one a couple of years ago, and it was great. Uh, and I think I probably overdue. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, in any case... Yeah, that's that's why that happened. Uh, but yeah, I, to, uh, make a long story short, too late. Uh, I agree with your overall point. I think there was context in that particular instance that explained why I brought that up in that particular instance. But uh, generally speaking, yeah, that, that, that a filmmaker agrees with me. You know, it might be kind of liberating to know that I'm not alone. You know, but yeah. that's that's true if anyone said it. You know, that's true if any any one of my peers said it, any one of you said it, I would be like, oh, hey, someone actually agrees with me on that. That's nice. It's not required. It's not important, really, in the long run. We, we, I, your opinion should hopefully stand, even if no one agrees with you. Uh, but it's nice when they do once in a while. And so it's nice that after all of these, like, Marvel movies and big studio films and there's this wave of goodwill for like one person to just point out a little bit of criticism from behind the scenes that I happen to agree with. And I go, Oh, cool. All right. So I'm not alone on that one. That's nice. That's kind of all I meant. All right. We should move on. All right. Uh, here's another letter. This one comes from Todd. Thank you, Todd. Uh, Todd. Um, good evening, gentlemen and bibs. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think he's talking to the cats. Oh, the other cats. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've seen the seven samurai. Ooh. Well, lucky. Good. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Along with The Magnificent Seven mm. and Battle Beyond the Stars, nice. Three Amigos, uh, The Other Magnificent Seven, and mm. several other versions of this story in various TV shows and movies. Yes. And while I've enjoyed many of these, I got to thinking about how dated the original movie looks, the action sequences in particular, and I was wondering if you had seen any of any uh, Asian remakes that involve samurai uh, hmm. and any that you would recommend. Any re versions of the... Well, there is a film called 13 Assassins. That's not a remake, though. No, but it's in the that's, spirit. Uh, it's in the spirit, but I don't... And it says, I look forward to your responses. Thank yeah. you, Todd. Well, um, to be fair, 13 Assassins, I think the version you're thinking of is a remake of another 13 Assassins movie. I was thinking of the Miike film. Yeah, the Miike film is, I'm pretty the, sure, from is a 2010. remake. Oh, yeah, Hold there on. is a film from uh, the 60s called 13 let, Assassins Let me, let me get the... Well. I'm going to just look up the original filmmaker on that, because that's... Yeah, the, the 13 words. Assassins from 1963 was directed by Aichi Kudo. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, a yeah. Toei. Uh, so yeah, the, it's it's a similar film. piece, obviously, and I'm sure you know you could watch those uh, the original Seven Samurai uh, and mm. um, the original 13 Assassins as a double feature, uh, uh, and it would I've, and work very very well. I'm, I'm astonished to hear you say that the action sequences in Seven Samurai are dated. Um, I mean, the movies... Th that, that film is a corker. Those are yeah. awesome action sequences, even to, I, even to this day. I happen to agree. I feel like uh, action sequences are a great example of something where... Um, I know the language has changed. Well, the language has changed. The, the, the but excitement the, well, is still what's, the same. what's important, I think, when you're watching Seven Samurai is to remember... And I'm not saying the person who wrote in didn't notice that, but in case anyone doesn't... 
Seven Samurai was writing the language of action movie as it was being filmed. And a yeah. lot of things that we take for granted about action sequences today were done, if not for the first time, then at least codified in The Seven Samurai. A perfect example of this uh, is intercutting in an action sequence between slow motion and motion at regular speed to produce tension. That's not a thing people were really doing before that. And nowadays it's pretty commonplace. So... It's a lot of things in that movie that are like actually extremely ahead of their time. But because so many movies have very specifically ripped off Seven Samurai, mm -hmm. and so many movies, and well, practically every action movie since, owe Seven Samurai, uh, you know, some fealty in terms of just structure and presentation, um, it may be difficult after you've seen a whole bunch of modern action movies to go back to watch the original. Uh, film and to have it feel as fresh and that's where context comes in uh now again yeah it's been remade a whole bunch of times and sometimes uh comedic ways galaxy quest is seven samurai a bug's life is seven samurai um of course the magnificent seven mm. uh it is a samurai film uh there are other other uh the the plot yeah. of Seven Samurai, um, yeah. just for anybody who hasn't seen it. Uh, first of all, see it. It you know it was made in nineteen fifty four, oh, yeah. but it's just an awesome action picture. Uh, a village is mm. beset by bandits who yeah. uh, come through and just steal all of their their food, and uh, their crops have yielded so little. Mm. And this is like uh, medieval Japan. Uh, their crops have yielded so little food this year that when the bandits come through, they're going to starve to death. Yeah. And their only recourse is to take what meager offerings they have, which is like mm -hmm. barely enough food to survive on. Yeah. And hire samurai. Yeah. So uh, basically to, we to protect them. We, we cannot fight the bad guys in this movie. We need to hire protagonists. Yeah. And that's the structure that everyone basically steals. You know, what people here are heroes who are going to do it because it's the right thing to do, not because they can get a lot of money out of it. And it's um, it's them against the world. That's seven samurai. That seems like a lot of samurai, right? Yeah, but they're fighting like dozens, if not hundreds of guys. Yeah, it's actually not a lot of samurai. Yeah. So it's a and, and really you could dust that off. Like, where, where do we get something like that? You could go mm -hmm. back to the Battle of Thermopylae. You know, yeah. if you wanted to go back to that kind of action storytelling, you know, a small group against the large horde. Mm. Um, there have been a few, I, I'm looking this up actually, uh, there are a few uh, uh, remakes of Seven Samurai that are in more of the Kung Fu mold. One is called Duel of the Seven Tigers, okay, which I haven't seen. That's from 1979. There's another one uh, that uh, is called Kill a Dragon. Which it's, it's called it's called Kill a Dragon. It's called Kill a Dragon. It actually stars Jack Palance. Uh, oh, he got around. Oh yeah, he did, especially in the seventies. Uh, according to IMDb, Chinese villagers hire a mercenary and his team of karate experts to help rid them of a gangster <laughs> and his henchmen who are threatening their island. And I gotta tell you, sold. Also stars Aldo Ray. Oh yes. my god, this, this, that's like yes. Grindhouse Par Excellence Hold on, right who, who there. Directed this. Oh my god, this, this sounds it's, awesome. It's, it's, watch it be like Yen Wo Ping or somebody like yeah. huge celebrity. Uh, no, 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 no. It was uh, Michael D. Moore. Oh, okay. It was, uh, and, it was an American uh, picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or perhaps an international film that's happened to be directed by. Uh, that guy, uh, Michael D. Moore, uh, who worked as a second unit guy in a lot of things. He was like the second unit director of Willow. 
but as for yeah, as for oh, he directed <laughs> he directed uh, one of the shittier uh, Elvis Presley movies, Paradise Hawaiian style. <laughs> I don't blame him for that. That that screenplay is almost unfilmable. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was the second unit director on Willow. He was the second unit director on the 1953 War of the Worlds. So, right. yeah, he, he was second unit director on Never Say Never Again. He was the second unit director on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, so right. that's a that's that's a cool... That guy had a cool-ass career. And now I really want to see <laughs> Seven Samurai knockoff. That sounds amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, all I can say is if the action doesn't work for you in Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not it's not modern action. It's not filmed the way that a lot of modern people would do it. But mm-hmm. that doesn't make it bad. And I encourage you to try, maybe try, if you haven't, uh, to immerse yourself in action movie filmmaking of the time yeah. and to try to realize what was normal. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the other action movies that were being made around the time the Seventh Samurai comes in, and then you see Seventh Samurai, you might be a little bit more impressed. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, what we think of as sort of the, the action genre, mm-hmm. um, it's it's sort of hard to trace its origins. Because there were, you know, action-based pictures going all the way back to the beginning of cinema. Oh, yeah. Silent movies were, were uh, making action and chase robbery, movies. One of the first, robberies. like, extended storylines that lasted more than a couple yeah. of minutes, you know? Films that were... I feel like action movies change as technology has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, the the types of action uh, that that you were or see are going to necessarily be predicated on the kind of action mm-hmm. or the kind of technology that people had access to. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of people look to action pictures as being very much of their era. Mm-hmm. As a result of that. So uh, a lot of people are going to focus when they think of action films are going to think of uh, their own. Generations action films. I think that's what you grew up with. Yeah. So I think, and, and I, I think, think almost everyone's standard is what they grew yeah. up and, with. And I think yeah. that is less to do with filmmaking and more to do with uh, certain tropes that show up in action films of each individual era. So, uh, like, like, I could probably point to a lot of action movies from my childhood that used Uzis a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uzis. We had Uzis. We had were, butterfly knives. Uzis and butterfly, like those kinds yeah. of weapons. And those very specific to that And time. those kinds of weapons are going to be filmed a certain way. That's going yeah. to kind of dictate the filmmaking a little bit. Sure. Also, depending on sort of what's in vogue in terms of violence. So mm-hmm. we grew up in an era with movies like Commando, which are horrendously violent. Oh, yeah. Uh, then violence sort of fell off. A lot of films were like PG-13 for a while, but then we get mm-hmm. come roaring back with stuff like The Raid and John Wick. Well, we get... Are, those are brutally violent again. Pacing changes a lot as well. Mm-hmm. When you look at action movies throughout the majority of film history, it wasn't wall-to-wall. Mm-hmm. Even in like the bigger action movies, there's a lot of dead air between the action sequences. And part of the idea was we build to the action sequence so that the action sequence will have more weight. Well, maybe, more, yeah. so, more somebody meaning. gets hurt, it means something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, you, you see there are definitely early action movies that feel like if they are not like ahead of their time, they presage what action movies would come. Mm-hmm. I, if you look at the original silent film version of The Mark of Zorro... Uh-huh. That's every superhero movie now. It, they started... That started right fucking there. Like, the, all of the pieces are basically in place. You do a double feature of the Mark of Zorro and Batman Begins, and you realize just how little things have changed. Yeah. However, a lot of other action movies at the time, they, they're they not terribly exciting. It took a really long time. With the occasion... With the exception of the occasional swashbuckler, 
like the sword fight at the end of uh, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, which is also very uh, seminal in terms of establishing what action movies would become. Just fighting, fist fighting mm. in movies didn't look very cool for a while. <laughs> it, was, it was mostly just they pulled the camera back and you watched people fight. Sometimes it was better than others, but it wasn't terribly exciting. And if you really want to see, here's a movie where there was before and after this. Fist fighting in movies, like a knockdown fight between two people in movies, was very different before From Russia with Love and after From Russia with Love. The fight between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw on a train, the way that that is filmed and edited, is a very different visual language for fight sequences than had been used before, at least in Western cinema. So you can see these things change and evolve over time. Car chases before Bullet. Mm were very different. And honestly, mostly not as exciting. We figured out, okay, no, that's a way to film that. And then after Bullet, people were doing Bullet, and then the Road Warrior came out, and everyone's like, oh my god, what if we just mounted all the cameras on the cars? We could do that. <laughs> Holy shit, that'd be a fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And then we started copying that. We just copy, and we copy, copy. Someone does something exciting, and then we copy it until all of a sudden the language doesn't seem recognizable. But if you go back, you can find the historical touchstones, and you can see how this was innovative. This was everything until this came along. But if you, again, if you look at the context, if you try to immerse yourself in the history of it, all of those things can be equally exciting now. You just have to get out of the headspace of where you are exactly at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. And then you have so much more cinema that you can enjoy on its on its own intended level. And it's, it can be hard to do. But if you can do it, it's a game changer when it comes to watching older movies. So I encourage you to, to give it a try. If you haven't, if you have and it still does, doesn't work for you, well, that's taste, isn't it? Yeah. Can't, can't, can't fight that, right? What can you do? Suppose not. Yeah. Anyway, um, that yeah. is it. Okay. For we've got mail. Yeah, that's a, we've been doing this for over an hour. All right. That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> thank you, everybody, for writing in. If we didn't get to your email, we'll try again next time. You can always email us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or if you'd like to send us something in the P.O. box so that we'll read it right off the bat. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, send us a, a physical letter to P.O. You don't have to send us gifts, by the way. Oh, no, no, uh, no. It's very generous. It's incredibly generous. But, you know, He's... it's not something we're... we're you know, no. asking for. But if you want to send us a letter, we do like getting physical yeah, letters. Letter, so send postcard, it, something. Send it to yeah. uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, yeah, you send us a letter, we'll read it. Yeah. We're still in that spot. We're so not, if, if we start getting dozens a week, we might have to be more selective. But at the moment, yeah, just send them on down. Um, and of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you want to listen to this podcast and all of our other podcasts on the main feed without commercial interruptions, you can head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, you get a whole bunch of exclusive shows, depending on what tier you're signed up for, including uh, all our yesterdays. We're reviewing every single Star Trek episode in order. Only the best. We're reviewing every single Best Picture nominee in order. Only the best international. We're reviewing every nominee for Best International Film in order. We're doing commentary tracks and, of course, you can get uh, every episode of Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, one week early. Yes. So, and you can vote for stuff, too. There's, there's all kinds of things. And thank you to all of our patrons for making this show possible, you know, even with the ads. The, 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 really, the Patreon is what's keeping us alive. 
So thank you for all of your assistance. It means the world to us. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, and yeah, thank you for writing in. Thank you for listening. Leave us a comment. Uh, uh, leave, leave us a review wherever you find us. That'd be really useful, actually. It helps us in the algorithm. Mm. Uh, give us a star rating if you can. But even just one sentence, be honest. If you don't like it, it's fine. Uh, but um, yeah, that, that would really help us out if you can't afford to be a patron. Uh, anyway, thank you, everybody, once again. You're really, really cool. And um, that's it for this week. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Yeah. <laughs>